Welcome to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Jessica White, and this place is a space where we talk about seemingly random topics, but they're all connected together. And today we have a special guest. We went to college together at Stony Brook. His name is Asif, and he is a software engineer now with a decade of experience. And today's topic is about how to use dark periods as motivation to achieve the unimaginable. So welcome, Asif. How are you Hello, doing? Hello, everyone. I'm doing well. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast. You're welcome. You're welcome. So let's dive into the topic. Um, so I want you to share some background about yourself. And I'll share, mm -hmm. you know, corresponding stories as well. Um, and we can just dive into this topic. I think it'll be uh, really motivational for people listening out there. So how do you want to start? You want to start with your childhood? Yeah, I can start with my childhood. All right. I was born in India. And uh, my dad had immigrated to the U.S. to set up a better future for his family. And this was uh, when I was three years old, and my younger sister, who's two years younger, uh, was just one. And my mom had me when she was 18, and she was pretty much, for a, from a young age, responsible to be like the mother and father both. Um, so I had the, my father immigrated to the U.S., and he was just working at a local convenience store somewhere. And um, eventually grew to own his uh, own convenience store and had us immigrate in the course of five years. So I was about eight years old when I uh, came to the U.S. Um, I think I was in the second grade. And uh, I started with the ESL, of course, so I didn't know the language. And... Um, a key message that was in my household was uh, really mainly motivational for my mom, where she was said that you have to make something of yourself because, you know, your father has, has made all these sacrifices for the family. So you have to kind of take it to the next level, but like use education to do that. So that was like a message I always got as a kid. What was it like growing up in India without your father around and it was just your mom? So those were interesting times because uh, in India, the way it works in a lot of Eastern countries is that you live with your extended family. And we had the pretty decent setup. Like we, we lived in like a bungalow kind of setup. A bungalow is like a term for almost like a mansion kind of space. So they keep very big houses, but your extended family and everybody would just kind of be in the same place. Mm, okay. So that, that was the concept there. I did grow up, I guess, to some degree, thinking about a father as like somebody that's like important in the household, even though he was absent. Mm -hmm. Because I remember my uncle once asked me, like, what do you want to be? when you grow up and I said a father. Oh. So I, I wasn't thinking oh. in terms of profession yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I don't know. There was like no concept in my memory about 
having a father yeah. at early age. Yeah. So it's not like I missed it. Hmm. It was just like that. Okay. And I think it also made up for the fact that, you know, your uncles will kind of play that little role for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So like, so you know how here in, in the U S the kids are kind of mean and they can make fun of you if you don't, um, mm-hmm. you know, have one of your parents around. So interesting. Was yeah, there I, any I've of that, that there or not that I can recall. Like I didn't really know the kids too well, or they knew like my family or things like that. Mm. It wasn't that close for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and I only attended like kindergarten, first grade. So maybe not too long in the educational time. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so then you transitioning over. So when you moved to the U.S., it wasn't like, was it a crazy transition or how was it? Um, so it was pretty much like throwing somebody in the cold wall water, uh, kind of feeling for me. Cause it was like a complete shock. I had an added pressure that, you know, you have to make it. Uh, cause that was the messaging I got as a kid and it has to be done through education and I didn't even know the language. So it was like, uh, very challenging, but I managed to get out of ESL fairly quick. Uh, within six months, but there would be things like uh, there are certain things that are different. This comes from the British. Uh, for example, if you want to use the restroom, uh, let's say to to pee in a, in the classroom, uh, the motion is this. <laughs> and if I went to my teacher and I did this, and people would make fun of it, like this guy is this kid is crazy, you know? Oh. Like what is he doing? Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, it's like, because the, in the U.S. culture, it's like, kid has to go. He takes the pass and goes. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really ask a teacher. Um, so it wasn't like that there. I I recently found out that it's actually like that in the British uh, classrooms as well. Mm-hmm. From friends, like, traveling and that. But at that time, when they made fun of me, you know, they would say things like fob, so, which means fresh off the boat. Yeah. Uh, so at that time I felt bad about it, but I thought it's funny that it's still like that in British culture. We wouldn't laugh about them, about doing it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Interesting. So, so you come here, you get thrown in the water where you don't know the language. You have this Mm -hmm. pressure inside your head that you need to make it, you know, that's just the messaging. Was it, would you say it's pressure Mm -hmm. or just a constant thought? It's a constant reinforced thought uh, by a topic that my mother will bring up. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a bit like trying to put a hopes on the kids. Uh, so I think it comes from that space. Um, but it, at the time, I felt a lot of anxiety because I didn't know what the future would be like. Everything felt like dark. Like I couldn't think at the age of 10, where would I be at 20 or 30? Mm. Um, yeah, but mm. I knew that that it must be something successful. Otherwise, you know, I think a child—the messaging a child gets—is like it's, it's not going to be—it's not going to get love if it doesn't do this. Yeah. So it's a threat to the love and safety, which I really needed because my dad had mental illness. 
and he continues to struggle with it. Uh... So I couldn't get the love from that side. And the messaging here was uh, unconsciously, right? Like that I picked up that I have to, I have to do, make something of myself or the child thinks that I, I won't, I won't be worthy or I won't get the one love that I do get yeah. from the mother's side. Yeah. 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 I understand that. I understand that. Yeah. Like, yeah, I was born here. I was born in the U S my parents are immigrants though. They came mm-hmm. from Jamaica and, um, my parents split when I was five. And so I didn't grow up with my dad, but it's not like he was completely absent. You know, he was there, here and, he was there, here and there. <laughs> and the message that I got from him was essentially the same thing where you have to do good in school and you to be successful you know he pushed me to become the doctor route but that was the messaging i got from him and then when we would see him it was kind of the same thing because we would have to show him our report card and then he would be you know take us out to eat or buy me clothes but it's like the oxymoron of that was that um after my parents split uh, on my mom's side, we went through like some tough times financially. So it's like, you know, I would I would have like holes in my clothes or holes in my shoes because I didn't see him that often. Right. So then, you mm-hmm. know, there is that piece of I actually really do need clothes. But at the same time, I need to show you that I, I, I'm doing good in school to get them, you know, that mm-hmm. same pressure. Like you need to do good. You need to think about your future at a young age. Wow. Yeah. So it looks like you were put in a similar predicament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did that impact you? Uh, for me, it impacted me where I was like always thinking about my future. And then at the same time, because I didn't, because we had tough times in my mom's house, I would look at the future as a sense of escape, right? Yes. I understand that, yeah. Mm-hmm. So almost as if, like, spending too much time in the future and taking away from the present in some ways. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So doing things for a purpose. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Now, I think for me that has helped me to be more mission oriented and like the stuff that I try to seek out currently. So these adaptations, which were, you know, coming from coming from a, not a pleasant period actually serve as positive, you know, um, in present day, day to day habits. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like what you're doing today is, a reflection of the real you or do you feel like it's an outcome of just trying to make it and be successful? Well, the question is, who are you like in this? Cause it's like the ego, the you is the ego, mm-hmm. but the ego is a sense of I. And to me, like is my sense of I coming from the fact I needed to do this as a kid and then I just applied it towards career or other things uh, like present day and that's part of who I am now or am I that 
like am i am i the software engineer or am i am i something else yeah i feel like i'm something else so i look at for example like the role that i do i'm i value high independence so you know i've set up my role like that where i don't have to you know i get i get the space to do what i want at like the strategy that i want to approach it with so it's not like it kind of feels like i own my own business mm. in some ways mm-hmm. so i i do feel like within what i need to do on a day to day i'm able to be you know living in the same principles that i would if i wasn't doing this career okay okay so you essentially developed mm-hmm. principles yes and then based off those principles you've shaped your life i've adjusted yeah i've adjusted everything around in my life for that mm. that's yeah. really interesting like, yeah for, for for me principles like freedom autonomy um independent thinking execution working with people uh strategy um delivering like holistically i i don't like just being part of one thing i i get kind of bored of that although i can go deep into whatever layer i need to in one thing i feel like it's a waste of my energy to spend too much on one thing hmm. i think i could i can i can give a lot more if i was to orchestrate between a lot of different things mm-hmm. hmm. and and i would of course spend more on that based on where resources uh my resources could be better used yeah it's really interesting it's interesting yeah. because it's like you know i had developed i would say my development path was like kind of opposite of that okay where <laughs> i was fixated on a certain type of income right that matters right so i was fixated yeah. on a certain type of income so my navigation was like okay what are the paths i can take that will eventually generate the type of income i want right. i did look at the problem in that way at some point mm. but i don't look at it like that now mhm I think initially it was like that for me as well. Mm-hmm. Um well for example we met in university. Yeah. And I switched around a lot of different majors. Mhm. And I don't know if you did as well. I did too. <laughs> okay, so I think a lot of people can understand this. Uh so I was a philosophy major and I actually hold one philosophy degree like, you know, I actually completed the major. Mhm. And uh um, That's right cuz then you had switched. Yeah. yeah. Mhm. Yeah, so I kept the philosophy of freshman year because I fell in love with from the very first class. It was ancient philosophy. And it was all about logic and truth and figuring out like, like ways to get people to see something from the art of questioning you know from 
Plato's Republic. And I really like that because uh, I think I've always been as a kid curious about uh, what is the truth? Like what are the purposes of what we do? What is right and wrong? You know, how does that kind of translate to a household? Like the way that I felt like I should be treated, but I was, I think it was coming from the aspiration as well, but also from a governmental level. Like, you know, why is democracy a higher form than like a dictatorship, for example, and using logic together. So I like that aspect of it a lot. And, um, I, of course, had similar things as, you know, the doctor aspect is in every Indian household as well. Uh, so I was like, okay, maybe I could try pre-med and make my parents proud. <laughs> but I didn't have it in me to do it because um, in biology class, it was really clear because we had to memorize, like, long names of, like, I don't even know what they were. The but mitochondria. proteins, uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, I, I sucked at doing that. So my memory wasn't great, but I was good at problem solving. So I thought maybe I can be a lawyer, which is also stereotypical for like an Indian hospital, like to say, you know, you have to be some kind of doctor, medical doctor, jurist doctor, you know, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, so I tried law. And um, there is no law major at Stony Brook, from what I know. Yeah. Yeah, you just take, you're right, because I remember a lot of the pre-law students, they were sociology majors. <laughs> yeah. 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 So so I kept the philosophy. Then I was like, but I, you know, I'm going to try this thing out. And I interned at the Attorney General's office in uh, Washington, D.C., and that's actually what made me change my mind about uh, being a lawyer. Mm. <laughs> I didn't really like the experience. Mm. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the people I had to dealt with. Um, the work felt stressful. And uh, I didn't see a lot of happy people, let's say. Um, so then I'm back to the drawing board. And I was like, let me do... Uh, maybe business and accounting. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll try this out and see how it works out. S However, I felt like accounting was too boring, <laughs> too mundane. <laughs> like, it was too much like, let's do this or that. And it was like a bunch of steps. And uh, I also felt like it can be automated. Yes. Like, you know, it was just like too simple. Yeah, like logically the process. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was like, what do I do? So I was just uh, chilling in my parents' house back for like a winter break or something. And uh, I had messaged this guy who was a mentor. And the story behind this is uh, the same guy who had taught me programming when I was 13 or 14. Mm. So he was like a mentor to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, he was in finance. So because he's in finance, I didn't think he would give me this advice, but he said, uh, why don't you just study computer science? 
like you were pretty good at programming but it's you know it's not going to be easy though but uh give it a try and because i had had that experience with him of like coding c++ and uh, my parents had also enrolled me into like learning sql and those kind of things like privately so we didn't have much but they spent like whatever money they had um towards the education when they saw like an interest that they thought would you know help my develop my future yeah so that experience actually made it easy for me to decide at that point but i think i was being a rebel cuz like cuz i knew i always had this but i didn't want to do it because i was like i don't want to take on responsibility if you will hmm. like i want to be my own oh uh, so i think that's where the philosophy came from uh, so okay. even when i was doing the expectations i found ways to just express me and what i would do uh, if i had the choice i see yeah interesting yeah so that i did the major philosophy and computer science graduated a year late felt kind of shitty when everybody was graduating but my theory was that uh what i'm doing is going to work out for my future and uh i rather be doing this cuz i wasn't more of like a phd or like masters kind of person yeah i just did education for the purpose of uh having a good career pretty much mhm yeah i also think it's arbitrary like you know these degrees it is and you know there's a lot of boot camps in our field mm-hmm. some of the best engineers that i've had the luxury to manage were coming from boot camps mm. in fact yeah interesting yeah interesting it's funny cuz like <clears throat> i think like for me because i had like the escape top of mind like that was the top of my mind was escaping right it had glamorized wanting to make my dad proud because i always mm. looked at being closer to him as the ultimate escape interesting mm-hmm. So you how was it like at your mother's place? So when they first got divorced, it was okay. Um so I was around 5 when they first got divorced. I just remember my dad would be in the house here and there cuz he was working a lot. He was in his fellowship. Um Okay. When we, yeah, we were so we were in Baltimore at this time, so he was working a lot. And I didn't know this till later but he did a fellowship at John Hopkins, right? So that's one of the top places to do a fellowship as a doctor, mm-hmm. right? So we were in Baltimore, he was doing his fellowship when they got divorced. He stayed there for about a year, uh and then he had moved to back to New York. So during that first year of the divorce, uh I just remember going to his apartment and things were okay cuz I just don't remember him in the house like that anyway. So it wasn't like a huge change. Mm-hmm. um but then things changed when my mom got remarried and so that was when i was around 8 or 9 okay. and she got remarried to an alcoholic oh wow who couldn't keep a job 
So basically things turn from like, okay, my parents are split. I see my dad when I see him. Um, let me make sure I do good in school. Uh, my brother's struggling with school. So let me help him to, you know, taking yeah. on that responsibility of taking care of my brother. Um, and then when, when my mom got remarried, that's when, okay, he yells all the time. There's, they're always arguing. Oh, my mom looks right. sick. Oh, is he going to touch me? Right. Those type of thoughts. Um, what else? The other thoughts were, okay, there's always cops at our house. The cops are always at our house. Oh, I can see the neighbors looking out of their windows because they see the cops at our house. So he's complaining. Oh, he's getting arrested. Right. So it, it turned from, okay, you know, mm -hmm. I'm still a kid. My parents aren't together, yeah. but it's not that bad to, okay. All right. It's like it was a complete mind shift. And and, wow. and during that time, um, again, like I, I saw my father a lot less frequent and mm -hmm. we never had any money. Right. To the point where like the church had to donate food for us occasionally. I don't know where the money went. Um, mm -hmm. I, I can't tell you. But again, he couldn't keep a job. I know my mom had like, you know, done certain things financially to support him which i thought at the time i'm like 10 didn't make sense um there was one time like he had crashed his car into the garage yeah you know. wow yeah can i ask you a question mm -hmm. so how was the divorce something that impacted your mom in like a negative way you would say I don't think she realized what she was doing because she, so had she got divorced the, him. She got the papers. He said it. He asked it. He asked for it, but she got mm -hmm. the papers. She actually went out oh, to get yeah. the papers. So this is one thing my dad says, like, you know, I, I, I didn't really mean it when he said he wanted it. Mm -hmm. But then he said when, when she actually got the papers, that's when. Like, I think that shocked him. That's what he says. Um, but from my mom's perspective, when we moved to Baltimore, she also had friends who were single mm -hmm. from the church. And so she was just listening to them. Right. Mm -hmm. so I'm pretty sure she told them, like, oh, he wants a divorce. And they probably like, get the, get the papers, get the papers. Because they were single. And how old was your mom? Or, so if I was five, she she was probably in her early thirties. I think she had me when she was twenty eight. So she was probably like maybe thirty four. Okay. Thirty three. Thirty four, thirty three. My age. Do you think that your mom mom had selected the second person, uh, the alcoholic stepdad, I would uh, should I say? Mm-hmm because uh she wanted to save him yes and do you think that she wanted to save him because she didn't have the courage to save herself from what she might have been going through as a result of the divorce probably i think that sounds very viable actually that sounds yeah i've viable. heard that uh, an attempt to try to save someone else is actually a, a way that people escape the courage that it requires to save themselves because that would require so much more work. It would. Yeah. 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 I think so. That, that, that actually sounds like a really viable, um, 
conclusion because I know some of the conversations that I have today with my mom, you know, there's a lot of regret where she's like, I didn't know. I'm sorry. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. Yeah. And has your mom healed from these experiences? Is she in therapy or has she talked to therapists or of some kind? So my mom, she's still really into the church. So I think she still leverages the church as her therapy. Okay. I think she's in her healing process now. Very good. Yeah. I think she's in her healing process now. That's great that, that, that she's there. Yeah. So one of the sad things for me is my dad has stage four cancer. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And uh, in my case, he was my abuser. Uh, oh. My own father was because of his mental illness. And uh, it was emotional abuse for me because uh, he had borderline personality disorder. Oh. So there was a lot of hate that I felt from him. Oh. Yeah. And uh, more like proximal distance and uh, emotional absence. Interesting. And neglect of those kinds. Interesting. And he's not in his healing process. Because uh, even though, you know, he doesn't have that much time left, he's not able to get around his own traumas, I think. So how have you reconciled with that? I think presently, I look at how do I want to, who do I want to be in the relationship? And I want to be a good son to him and also be sympathetic and supportive. Yeah. So that's the topic I struggle with, right? Mm -hmm. Because you know, someone is struggling with something and you know that they may not get out of it. So how do you express love? How can you be a good son? What does that look like without sacrificing yourself? Yeah, I think you have to set boundaries. So I think sometimes when I speak to my dad, he's in a very negative spell. Mm -hmm. And if I ask him, like, you know, let's talk about something else or try to redirect him, he somehow goes back to that. But, you know, hearing negative things all the time, can have an impact, right? Like nobody yes. wants to be someone who's going to just say negative things to you for like 10, 15 minutes straight. Right. Uh, so after a while, I just make an excuse to like, hey, I have to go somewhere. But what's beautiful about this is that he's always had like a window where it feels like he has clarity. It might not be in that moment. Mm. So like say I'll try a hundred times to like reach out to him to check up on him. Like maybe there will be like five or 10% times where we would be able to talk about deeper things like his childhood. Ah, uh, oh. And I can hear from him how he views things, what happened to him. And uh, like he had also a lot of traumas. Like he said to me that uh, as a form of punishment, um, his uncles and like extended family would tie him 
and his mother and his brothers with the cows that slept outside. So he had a lot of abuse too. Oh, wow. So that's, that's what's helped me when you ask me, like, you know, how do you feel love? Is that, okay, like, we, you have your traumas. I have my traumas through you. But the commonality that we have is that we share trauma. Mm. So I can understand it from that lens and objectivize like that, okay, if this was not me that it happened to and I heard it as a story, would I be able to relate to this person? Mm. And the answer is yes. That's a very, very interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, so basically, like, who are you, basically? The I, to let the I, the ego, not be you, but to look at yourself from watching a movie lens. Mm -hmm. That's actually something that's helped me a lot. So that concept of looking at yourself as if you're in a movie I think that's a concept I've recently been introduced to, right? With mm-hmm. basically trying to understand your ego and not trying to kill it, but put it in the proper place, right? It's there for a reason. Okay. And where I am today is is struggling with that. What does like the boundary look like? Mm-hmm. And how do I navigate that boundary? Because, for example, let's say you look at your life completely, like all the way step back from a movie. I shouldn't have a problem then technically talking to a person and letting them spew whatever they want to spew. Right. Right? But in all actuality, it does affect me, even if I don't want it to. Hmm. So... And I ask these questions because, like, yes, my mom's in her healing process, but I still can't allow myself to talk to her that often yet because Mm. I know her patterns. Okay. Like, my mom, she developed her own issues as a result of all the trauma that she had gone through as an adult, right? Mm -hmm. So she has certain patterns of interactions and certain ways of logic it's kind of twisted a little bit well i mean i can guess yeah so i like the core of myself Mm. my heart i want to love my mom so much and talk to her all the time and everything but i know what that would lead to Mm. it would lead to the same cycle that we had before what is it about that cycle that bothers you? The highs and lows. Okay, so the mood. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so mood instability is something that my dad has had a lot, and he continues to struggle with, even though he's on mood stabilizers. So I could relate to that experience. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of rage, anger burst, it comes from a fear of abandonment. Mm. And um, there will be so many times where he would just leave the house. And like after a strong fight with my mom, and my mom would be crying. 
Um, like there was episodes where she had so much uh, from him, like like psychological abuse, where he just leaves and doesn't come back for days and uh, continues to fight with her, calling her and these things. And you don't know if your dad is gone from your life at this point. But he would always return eventually, but like would be like extreme hate during that period. And um, I remember when I was a kid, my mom tried to overdose on uh, pills, painkillers, to kill herself because she had too much, yeah, like abuse from him. And so I had to witness all that. And those kind of things, I think, make it hard for me to forgive him. But I think uh, at some point I have to say that there, this is a dynamic view of two things, right? There's the abuser and there's the abusee, like person who agrees to be abused, right? And I think my mom can fall into the victim side and and tries to view herself that way in some way. Mm, I see. Because that's so like her. Only recently I had to, because my brain was like, oh, mom is good, dad is bad. Yeah. But it's like now I'm looking at things more objectively. And I'm like, okay, how do, can this happen without two dynamics? Because yeah. I'm able to maintain my distance, right? I'm mm. able to maintain my uh, psychological peace by doing that. Yeah. So, like, how come this person not able to? Well, because she's allowing it to some degree. Would your mom be able to financially, or I guess, because your mom, so in India, it was like, you know, you're in the bungalow, but then you come to the U.S., and I'm assuming you move back in with your dad, and you guys are in one household, right? Mm-hmm. Is your dad, like, was he the main provider? Yes. That was also the problem, I think, because uh, I don't think they allowed my mom to do like outside work. They had a very traditional mindset where the man works and the provides for the woman and the woman takes care of the kids mm-hmm. and stays home. So that's kind of the role she was prescribed to uh, culturally also. And it wasn't until I went to college and the financials were always bad. But she had enough because she's like, look, the kids are in college. I'm going to go work because uh, we need the money. Mm -hmm. And so my mom started to work at a beauty salon and uh, eventually ended up buying it. Oh, wow. Yeah. She borrowed money from like a lot of uh, like my uncles and like friends and took a loan. Mm-hmm. And she bought her the same salon for 90K. Wow. This was in 2011. Mm. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because uh, this lady wasn't allowed to work and you give her the opportunity and like a year later to, or like two years later, she, she ends up buying the business. Wow. And she still has it. Wow. So technically your mom is able to just remove herself from your dad at this point. Oh yeah. He, he, he is not needed for her. 
but she stays. Like, but it's the other way around. Like, he might need her more than she needs him. Mm-hmm. And when when did your yeah. when did your dad get diagnosed with cancer? Uh, this had happened this year. Oh, no, he, last year. Sorry. Oh, he got diagnosed last year. Yeah. It, they found it in a late stage when it had metastasized to, to other parts of his body. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're so so going so I'm asking you these questions because of mm-hmm. what you mentioned about the abuser and abusee, right? Right. Because I know in in some cultures, some households, the woman just can't leave just because it's mm-hmm. taboo. But at this point, right? Yeah, that's just, what it is. Yeah. So like at and and when you're in college, like 2011, 2012, when your mom starts working and then she buys the salon, mm-hmm. she still stays in the household with your dad. Yes, it's. Uh, um, I mean, I've actually recommended sometimes to her at that during that period when it would be bad mm-hmm. that hey, why don't you just leave him? And uh, she has this uh, guilt that she's been raised with. She's like, I can't just like walk away from him. Uh, he needs me, and like she would feel guilty if she walk away and and something was to happen to him. Yeah. As if she thinks that's her responsibility. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. That makes sense. I think with guilt, guilt is a tricky thing. Guilt is also a manifestation of the ego. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I learned recently. Like, because you think like guilt... It's like, oh, me feeling bad because I have a good conscience. But like, you know, maybe you're attaching to an identity. And you're saying, I must be this. And if I'm not this, I'm not good. Yeah. So it's like a harsh self-judgment coming from the ego. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's why I say like guilt is like an interesting thing because like even sorting through my own sources of when I feel guilty right mm-hmm. and then for me it stemmed from people pleasing right mm-hmm. so one source of feeling guilty if I don't respond to a person in a particular amount of time I'm like oh man I didn't respond to them yeah or I'm like that as well yeah 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 uh what are what are some other examples um oh let me give them money because I have more than them. Okay. I'm like that sometimes, Mm -hmm. but I know that I have this weakness. So with money, I'm a little bit careful. Yeah. Now I'm (laughs) careful. Because I was also built for survival. (laughs) I was raised for survival. So it had conflicts with two different things. See me, it's like, I... I now I'm like that, but it's like I felt so guilty because like if I look at some of my siblings, I'm like, okay, I have more than them. I need to give them money. Right. But it was a, a sense of guilt. But when I step back and be objective and just really evaluate this series of events that happened between me and my siblings, mm. I'm like, okay, I'm like, okay, these are the choices that I made and these are the choices that you made. Why should right. I feel guilty for how I am today, which is accumulation of decisions made over the past 15 years, 
I mean, you can't, you're trying to save someone else. Yeah. So do you see a kind of a correlation yes. there with your mother was exactly. trying to do? Exactly. Yeah. Do you? Yeah, I think we all have these propensities, right? Mm-hmm. Do you but have I any think correlation? The, the, this is really interesting. Sorry, what were you saying? I was going to say, do you have any correlation? Oh, that's a good question. I think I do feel guilty when I don't reply, for example, to people. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm very prompt. I'm more on the OC side. I'm not an OCD person, like, full-blown out, but, like, I'm definitely OC. And I think that comes from, like, having to adapt to want to, wanting to, you know, being in a household where there was, like, walking like eggshells. Yeah. I had to do things in a certain way. Yeah. Otherwise, like, you know, I might get a beating or like or like yelled at terrified and yeah all those different things Mm -hmm. uh i don't think that i'm living in fear now but i'm doing things to actively tackle uh fear like what so recently i think the higher level theme i should say is to put myself outside my comfort zone Mm. So I did a lot of that just in one dimension for a while with like career and trying to grow there. And I'm kind of happy with that at this stage. So I've been focusing more on like fitness. Uh, And I started to make that a goal, like starting from last year. And so I said, I want to be having high endurance strength um, and also defense skills so i do something in all these three different categories uh for most of the days yeah and something funny is that i was bullied as a kid so i was beat up but because this household was so crazy and my mom was already so scared of my dad i didn't i didn't want to take prompts to her ah i didn't want to tell her that hey i'm getting beat up at school by this kid uh, bullying me for homework. So what I did instead, because I didn't want to get beat up, and I got beat up, and I was terrified of it. So I made versions of the homework, the version that I would submit for me, the version that I would give to the bully to copy, and I deliberately have some wrong, because uh, I didn't want them to get as high as me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I didn't also didn't want suspicion. That's so funny. You know what's yeah. interesting, right? Now I'm tying it back, trying to yeah. connect the dots, right? Where you said you developed your principles first, right? And one of them mm-hmm. was independence. Mm-hmm. But that example you just gave, you were already self-developing your independence as a means for surviving. Yeah, I mean, I always said to people, like, I I was chilling with, like, a lot of different people in Washington Square Park. And, um, you know, I was like, my hustle was my brain. I think everybody has a hustle, right, in New York City. Mm -hmm. Some people are like, hey, my hustle is like, I don't know, there was in the parks, like, people peddling weed, so that's their hustle. Uh, There was people like, 
maybe they own like laundromats, they own businesses, or maybe they, you know, they're, they're delivery people for those businesses. Uh, whatever the hustle, right? Everybody has a hustle. And my hustle from a young age was my, my uh, using my mind. So even here with the homework example, I tried to apply that. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. So I'm using that now with more like physical things. So I, I, yeah, I know how to like strategically plan like, okay, what is the diet I should have? Uh, how do I want to work out? So I would research deeply, like how many reps, uh, what diets to have, what, what kind of workouts to do, how frequently to do it. So I'm applying that now with like fitness in like a different area. But at the same time, with defense, with jiu-jitsu. Mm -hmm. So I practice jiu-jitsu. And then the funny thing about that and the bully is that the first time, couple of times that I did jiu-jitsu, I had bad dreams and I uh, oh, had nice yes. sweats because I visualized the bully in in my dream in the jiu-jitsu match against me. Oh my gosh. So I didn't know that I had this stored trauma inside. Yeah. Wow. Just because I decided to go outside the comfort zone in a completely different area rather than just career, I was able to discover this. Wow. That's and so, so interesting. Yeah. So I actually actively tackle my fear this way. Wow. That's yeah. so interesting. It's like the act of you doing jujitsu. You didn't even realize that you would be tackling that childhood trauma. Yes, yes. Because I was resistant initially. And I did it once and I was like, hmm, because somebody influenced me, all right? Um, so let me give it a try. And then I didn't really go back. And I didn't understand why I'm not going back to this. So then I went back and I realized like, oh shit, there's some trauma here. Yeah. The interesting thing about trauma is it gets stored in the body. It does. Yeah. But uh, at this point, I don't feel like nervous. Like, I feel like I can think clearly in those sparring matches under pressure when, you know, you're about to get choked out right before that in like a vulnerable position, let's say. So I'm able to stay calm and think like, how can I get out of this? What can I do differently? Wow. That's yeah, really, maneuver. that's really cool. Yeah. You like triggered a thought in myself because I uh -huh. was such a passive, um, passive participator in my household where mm -hmm. I wanted to keep the peace and stuff. So right. even if something made me angry, I'd be like, no, 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 I'm not angry. I'm not angry. Or, okay, I'm going to go to my room. And then it's like, occasionally I'm like, huh, I should try kickboxing, you know, just Very to cool. let out. But I never, ever, ever, ever said, like, resistance. Like, I don't do I anything. I would be down to try kickboxing. <laughs> Martial arts is amazing. Yeah. 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 You know, just to, because, like, I know I have things stored. Like, like my, my shoulders are tense all the time. Like, yeah. I have to ask my husband to push my shoulders down just because I'm like this. That comes from anger, too. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I anger gets stored in the shoulder a lot. Mm-hmm. 
And I recently discovered that I have like repressed anger. But for some reason, like I won't do anything physical. Like I won't do so. That's like the resistance. Cause they'll probably yeah. release. Something. I mean, lifting heavy weights is another one. Mm. That also releases a lot of that. But good form is important. So Yeah. Yeah. I'm only recently getting into this world. I was active at Stony Brook, but after that, I was just more of into endurance. Mm-hmm. So I was doing a lot of running. And uh, I lost a lot of muscle like that. Yeah. Because yeah. I was also doing long intermittent fast. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So those things didn't help. Yeah. Uh, for strength. And, uh, you know, I'm getting back into resistance training. It's been three months. I was 150 pounds. Now I'm 175. Hmm. Wow. So, so, so you use your, your hustle is your brain and you're able Mm -hmm. to strategize and plan things and figure out the right way to do things. Would you say that you're able to just automatically stick to your regimen or do you still struggle with your (laughs) motivations? Like, Oh, I don't feel like doing this. I'm not going to do this. So I'm actually a pretty big fan. And I'm not saying that I'm him, but I definitely am motivated by his message. Is David Goggins? I don't know. And who that is. He, uh, he's he's a great person. Like he has a book on audiobooks, like "Can't Hurt Me." I definitely recommend. Mm. Um, but his whole message is like, you get control over your mind by putting yourself into like physical challenges Hmm. and controlling your mind in that panic mode and bringing it to like normal so amongst many things he's like ultra marathon runner and he's basically his message is like put yourself out there and actually challenge yourself physically Hmm. yeah so I mean he says something that I really like and I feel like I'm kind of at that stage right now where he's like, uh, you have to learn how to uh, motivate yourself without purpose. Without purpose. Without purpose. Expand on that. So like, I don't need to, like I today I got up like 5 a.m., right? And I worked out for like two and a half, three hours. Like, I don't need to do that. There's no purpose in me doing that. Ah. Like, it doesn't make a difference to, like, my survival. Huh. Hmm. But I don't want to survive. I want to thrive. Yes. So I do it for that. But, like, you don't have to thrive. Homeostasis is pretty good. <laughs> Just waking up at nine, having a meeting at 10, you know, starting your day like that. It's not going to make a difference to me in like my day-to-day survival or like what I'm going to do. Right. And maybe the output results of like, like I don't work out because it, you know, is required for a specific reason. I do it because I'm set a goal and now I'm going to 
strive to it because it gives that's what gives me like motivation the act of setting a goal and pursuing it with full force without any other preconceived notions tied to that goal for example like yeah. like emotions yeah. like any preconceived emotions tied to that goal it's just setting a goal just to do it and just to see yeah it has to be something that i'm interested in but it's like when i'm sore and i'm tired i don't have to get out of bed in the morning but do you i do why because <laughs> i think that that that's a way to control my mind mm control your mind or have your mind control your body cuz if you're feeling tired i think it's tired, the mind uh-huh. i don't think the body doesn't have the ability to do what it needs to do although it's sore mm-hmm. i think the body is pretty much like an animal an animal can do a lot of things uh it's the mind that's actually you know gets civilized mm-hmm. cuz it's no longer an animal yeah it doesn't live in those harsh conditions but the body was built for that so that's what i mean is like the mind is telling me to sleep my body can actually handle a lot more i see what you're saying okay i see what you're and saying and so to make those tough decisions actually gives me more control of my mind and like fear hmm and also like things things that are negative that are going to happen right so i did jiu jitsu i wrestled like with this guy who was like like way over my weight class like 90 pounds more than me or something and i got crushed and i got injured now i know to stay within my weight class <laughs> but uh i got a meniscus injury hmm but i didn't stop working out i still did what i could in the working out. Right. I didn't do jiu-jitsu until I healed and I did a lot of like self-therapy but I I didn't stop making an effort towards what I needed to do. So would you say you're kind of like because you've had because you've gained a lot of control over your mind. You're able to regardless of what type of circumstance that appears, you're still able to do what you set out as a intention, right? So your goals are your intentions. So you you basically I, I wouldn't say like whatever mm-hmm. because everybody has a threshold. Right. But I think uh yeah, I'm able to challenge that threshold consistently for myself. Yeah. So tying going back to the 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 original topic around dark periods and using them as motivation. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned your childhood you had dark times. Actually you've had a lot of dark times just from dealing with your your family dynamic and stuff like that. When or a couple questions. 
Did you realize you were in a dark period? And if so, did you get consumed by it or were you constantly looking for ways to get out of the darkness? I don't think I realized uh, that, that I'm going through a dark period because it was just part of me as a child because I absorbed a lot of my mom's emotions mm -hmm. and she was like always like scared of my dad and his temper and all different things. So I learned to suppress that, but I had anger within me. Like, and I would express it occasionally in like rage. It wouldn't help like a positive, healthy household. So my mom kind of shunned it and she's like, you can't be like this. So I suppressed it. That's what led to depression for me. Um, and I was kind of depressed as a kid. I, I almost thought about suicide as a kid as well. Um, How old were you when you thought about it? When I was 14, 15. Okay. And um, I remember I had like the knife and everything in my room. And I was going to try to do it. And then... It was like two different things going on in my head that I'm nothing. And I remember dissociating, looking at the ceiling that I'm nothing and I'm nobody, I'm worthless. Because these were the ideas that I felt from my father towards me. And uh, taking my life didn't feel that bad in that way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, and then on the other side, I had created like a split of like, I'm everything. Because those were the hopes that my mother put into me when she said that you have to make something of yourself and like uh, be successful and take it to the next level. So like, I didn't know how I would do it, but I knew that I had everything required to get that. And in that thought, in that world, I chose to attach to the fact that I'm, everything is possible. Because I had to split from that image. It's almost like a skin layer that, that like, you need to callous and like, like let it drop off. Yeah. So like a new layer can come in. Yeah. And in that time, the new layer God gave birth to me. Wow. And that's how I adapted to it. So I think I still think like that to some degree. And um, I've always been like a, when I was depressed, still functional, very functional, highly functional, like, although depressed. Were you depressed when, in Stony Brook? I think I had periods of depression, but I think prior to that, I was a lot more, um, but I definitely had uh, periods in Stony Brook when I was very depressed, yeah. Uh, I've had that continuously until like 2016. Mm. And it was like over a girl that I was talking to at that time. It didn't work out, so I fell into a depression. But this time, I had first time recognized like I always fall into this pattern and it's not about this girl. It's about something deeper. It's about the pattern that keeps recurring. 
So that's when I started to meditate and um, like whatever I do, I do in like an OC way, yeah, like obsessive compulsive way. Yeah. So I would meditate like all the free time that I could get. I was be meditating. I wake up early. I would meditate. Uh, I build up with like a couple of minutes before work to like an hour before work during lunch hour and like after coming back home and then like, you know, just did a lot of meditation and I started to journal a lot more and I got to like a deeper layer of like, Oh, what, what is the cause of these feelings? Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time also learned that psychedelics helps with things. So I had experimented with psychedelics, which also helped my uh, healing process uh, combined with meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's when I got into running as well and fitness and all those different things. But prior to that, I wasn't healthy at all. And I was like, got over like 200 pounds and was fat. Oh, wow. And, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I changed that around. I bicycled a lot. I ran a lot. Yeah. Now I'm trying to kind of take it to a different thing with like weight training and defense as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think working out is good therapy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Hmm. That's a very interesting, very interesting story you shared. Especially like, Going from the feeling of nothing, nothingness. Yes. To everything. Mm-hmm. It is, nothing is everything. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, like, when you ask about abstract things, like, the universe is mostly nothing. It's not the matter. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if we're part of that universe, we're pretty much mostly nothing. You know, or the the broader part is mostly nothing. Yeah. But that's also so much bigger than just us as one individual or Adam. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I we're still it, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I've been exploring that topic recently too. Um, I've been recently getting into like quantum physics and quantum mechanics and stuff like that too, right? Very cool. Smallest particles, small, 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 small particles, and all that stuff. And um, it's like the fine line between the feeling of nothingness, but then going over to everything for me. It was was starting to develop self love. Hmm. Tell me more about that. So, I would say I probably started my true, true, true journey of healing journey of healing from twenty twenty one. It started in twenty twenty one. But then it really started June of 2023, where I was just unpeeling all of these layers. Interesting. 
So I had inadvertently built up my whole entire life of helping everybody else except for me. Wow. Yeah. So then I had gone into a period of just like stripping that away, stripping that away, stripping that away, stripping that away. And then I'm like, I'm nothing. What's mm. my purpose? There you periods, I'll cry. I'll be crying, you know. Thank God I'm married because if I was alone, because <laughs> I, you know, I, my my husband, he's he's probably yeah. one of the very few people who like truly loves me unconditionally. And so, well, like, you know, but he was just there loving me, right? Because I'm just stripping away all of this. I'm like, what have I done with my life? Like, what's my purpose? I'm nothing. I've, I've built everything around everybody else. Like, mm. who am I? I don't have anything, right? But because he loved me, you have know, just felt his love, right? So that's like, okay, let me just keep going. Mm. Then it like, then it turned into the way how he feels about me. I need to feel that way about myself. Cause before the right. only thing that was in my head was just the critic. You're not, this is not good enough. You need to do this better. Right. Yeah. The interesting thing about it is that we have learned to see ourselves from the eyes of the critic rather than the people that love us. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I started leveraging that. And then, you know, so the way how that, that looked, it was small conversations, like with myself, like just, you have a lot of great experience. You should leverage that. And it's like, yeah. You're right. I do have a lot of experience. What do you like, Jess? What are the things that, you know, just explore, you know, the exploratory thing you were talking about. Right. I love classical music. Okay, we're going to go to a symphony orchestra. Oh, my God, this is beautiful. Right? So it's like I'm finally giving myself to space to express who I truly mm. am after stripping away all those layers. You know, I had to put some distance between myself and certain relationships, certain friendships. I quit a job, kind of went through some radical things. <laughs> but now that's like, it's, it's led me to, okay, I like talking to people, you know, oh, let's have this podcast. I've always able to, I was always able to have really meaningful conversations with people. I believe that, yeah. You know, and then, but the survival side of Jessica would be like, okay, I can connect these, with these people because I need to help change, change them. Well, that's not really necessarily the case, right? Maybe it's just supposed to just do this, have my podcast. And we talk about journeys and helping others who may be struggling with the same thing that we didn't even realize that, that they're struggling with. I don't need to be in the intricate details of someone's life and making them do things well, that... That's an interesting point. Because what it made me think about is like, it's a bit like ocean waves, mm -hmm. you know? So these are just waves colliding, right? So somebody will happen to jump into this, gain some connection or motivation, inspiration, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that wave might take them, their wave to another direction. Yeah or impact the magnitude and the and other things behind it. 
and that creates like a spiraling effect. Mm -hmm. So when we look at that zoom out as the ocean moving, that's really our purpose, right? To touch people in positive way, if that's your message. Right. And how that lands on someone, we don't, we can't control. Mm-hmm. Right, because we don't yeah. know how the waves, <laughs> like we don't know how their wave is, right? It's not our business to control someone else's waves. <laughs> right. It, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because it's a beautiful thing, just like looking at the ocean waves as a whole anyways. Yeah. We're not judging it like, oh, this wave canceled that one out. Yeah. Yeah. That is it's just what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the concept of acceptance. Accepting things as they are without trying to have your ego control it. Yeah, it's easier said than done, of course. Mm-hmm. As people like like myself, I should say, who are OC, like obsessive, compulsive, and they want things a certain way. Uh, but uh, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is OC versus yeah. excellence? Uh, that's kind of what it is. So it's not OCD fully, but it's like having like OC traits and like wanting to attempt for perfectionism knowing very well that there's a such thing as perfect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's limits to those things, right? And one of the things that I like is a running analogy I got from that book, Can't Hurt Me. And so he's like, in in jogging and running, there are zones. Are you familiar with those? Yeah, I, I, I've, I've, at a very introductory level. Like there's the heart rate zones. zones. Yeah. So, you know, depending on the beats per minute, you're in zone one, which is like your rest, like zone one, rest, walking kind of zone. Zone two is a little bit harder than that to the degree where you could still have a conversation. Zone three is harder than that. You can't have a conversation. You start to lose the ability so far. Zone four or five is more like, you know, think about in nature running away from like a tiger sprinting kind of level yeah so he's like think about the thoughts that you're having in the day-to-day and ask yourself can i control this And if you can't control the, you got to put that thought in that zone one which is like minimal effort you're not going to put that much brain resources into it it's just going to be there Mm -hmm. but you're not going to you know, like obsess about it, especially those thoughts that you know are going to do that to you. When you wake up and you meditate, you have to say, if this was to come up, then I would feel this way. So when it comes up, you know, to put in zone one. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good exercise. That's really good. It's really good. No, seriously, really good. Because if so you don't... His example mm-hmm. is very mm-hmm. interesting. Would you like to know? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So he's like, you know, I know, for example, when I wake up tomorrow at four tomorrow, I'm not going to want to run. I already know that I'm going to have this thought. So when I get up, I'm not going to let that thought take over. I'm going to put it in zone one. Like you knew you were going to think this, but you're not going to let this actually turn into something stressor. 
that takes over. I like that. Yeah, I really like that. I like that. And 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 it, especially like with meditation, because I started meditating last year as well. Mm. I don't think people realize the impact of observing your thoughts. Oh yeah. Because when you start observing your thoughts or starting to practice observing your thoughts, because that was the, the hardest thing for me before I started meditating, because my thoughts would be like, <laughs> just mm -hmm. like a white noise going on in my brain, like, <laughs> you know, like just constant things. And then right. just. <laughs> so then when I started meditating, um, the white noise started to become a lot less staticky, a lot less fuzzy, mm. right? Because I just had things. So, you know, I had really bad, like, anxiety and overthinking. So now I'm finally at that place because I've practiced meditating and trying to forcefully calm my mind, observe mm -hmm. what's going on in my mind. Observe those thoughts, observe the patterns, observe the feelings. Like, why do I feel low today? Hmm. It's funny because now you're telling me this technique of like, now put it into zone one. So it's a very timely conversation <laughs> <laughs> because like I have thoughts and I have feelings where I'm like, okay, I know I'm not going to feel, I know I'm not going to feel like doing it tomorrow. That's a sign. I'm not going to do it tomorrow. Like I give into it. Right. But stepping back, my intention is not giving into it. My intention is completely different. Yeah, I mean, you can't give into it. I mean, sometimes you will, but maybe you give into it. And it's like the analogy of like a cookie jar, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say, or like your favorite treat, you know where you store it and you might do things to store it a little bit further. So it's harder to reach. So when you're getting out of your room and you catch yourself in the middle of the journey of trying to go get it, and that's the first time you realize like, oh shit, I'm just acting on instinct. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about this. It's okay to catch yourself there and say like, okay, I knew I was going to do this, but I'm not going to do this now. Put it into zone one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really like that. It's really, really good. <laughs> And some things are worth putting into zone four and five. Yes. Because when you put that energy into it, you can accomplish something great with it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I've been really balancing really at this stage of my life. Can you give an example of something recent that you put into a zone one and then something that you put into like a zone four or five? Zone four or five would be like, like at work, a project being behind, ah. right? Then me being like, I manage a team of like 10 engineers right now. That's a lot of engineers to manage. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of projects. So there's this project that was behind and like, it's, I'm in meetings a lot. 
but I had to ask myself, okay, would my involvement deeper at the code level at this point, would it help this project? Mm. And the answer was yes. Mm. So I made that judgment call. But I have to do it in a way that the engineers see that as collaborative. So, you know, pairing with them, helping them out, not letting them feel judgment. Because not coming from a space of like, I don't trust you. It's just that I think I could add value here. Right. So to recognize that, but realize that this actually takes me beyond and I have to do extra now that I'm comfortable doing. Now it's impacting the level that I want, like my work to be an autopilot mm-hmm. versus not. Mm-hmm. But I know that I need to do this for a short period to see some success. Right. right. So I spent time in it. And then, you know, two weeks, three weeks, now the project's on track. I take a step back again. So now I'm back in zone one. So you got to know also when to take a step back Mm. because when things are good and you're still zone for zone five, you're going to stress your team out. Yeah. (laughs) So you got to take a step back and go back to zone one and let them do it the way they want to at this point. That's another conversation of indicators. How do you identify the proper indicators for the proper response? Yeah, I think in tech, we do a good job. We have things like retros. Mm. We make the team actively feel heard. And it's also, this goes back to government. Like, how do you view the team? Do you want to be a team person that's like a dictator, right? And then you're like, just going to be hated, right? Right. Maybe you're going to get output. But that's not the best output, I think. Mm-hmm. I think a good output is when you have like a representative democracy. So everybody gets a vote or more like a parliamentary democracy where they have the right to veto me, but I also have the right to veto them. Mm -hmm. So that's how I like to run the teams. Yeah. Yeah. I find that way is the most effective. Oh, right. I didn't even talk right. about like my background like that because <laughs> yeah. I do tech project management, right? Right, right. Yeah, right. tech project management. So there was um, a couple of challenging projects where I had taken over a project and the team was mm-hmm. so burnt out because the previous project manager was um, a dictator. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so retros kind of are good things for this because you have a start, stop, and continue. Mm-hmm. Meaning like, what should we start doing? What should we stop doing? What should we continue doing? And reflections on that. Uh, That tells you a lot about like how the team is feeling. So I know when there was retros, like recently, we had a lot of things in continue and some things in start. So the team is like not saying too much about stop this or stop that. So that's how you know that the team is liking what's going on. That's a way to kind of test the barometer, if you will. Yeah. 
So it's basically. Unless you're a tyrant and they're just not telling you like, but that can happen too. So you have to be self-reflective as well. Mm -hmm. And then you might get peer feedback or you might get manager feedback. So you have to listen to those as well. Right. So step one, practice self-reflection, practice observing your thoughts, practice observing your behavior. Step two, if you're managing a team, provide the space for them to be open towards you. So you're basically allowing yourself to be in a kind of vulnerable position, actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to be willing to take critique and just listen to it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to react to it. And then when you process it, (laughs) you can respond to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing because um, I'm listening to, I don't know if it's an autobiography or biography of Nelson Mandela. Mm. And he talks about uh, the the local chiefs and how they used to have a meeting with the villagers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the ways was everybody listened to everybody, regardless of the status they hold in society, if they had an opinion. And we wouldn't leave until everybody's heard. And the leader, you can openly criticize. And uh, he doesn't respond, and he neither does he show a reaction. And when everybody's done, the leader will get like a voice. And he saw the best leaders were actually the people that summarized everybody's opinions and move forward. Because mm. as a leader, he said, "You're a shepherd." Yes. And the goats might think that they're leading the way. But all around, you're actually maneuvering, ensuring they're going on the right path. Mm. That's what you want them to feel. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. So it kind of goes back to, I think, what I think about of like representative democracy and a parliamentary democracy. It's so yeah. funny. Now you make me want to research more into <laughs> these different types of governments. No, seriously, because yeah. especially like the way how things get so politicized, you don't you don't want to touch yeah. anything related to government with like a ten foot stick because it's so charged up today. But when you take away all the chargedness and everybody's emotions out of it, and you just look at just structure of interacting with people mm-hmm. and really trying to find the optimal way. Right. I think your approach is it's not it's not conventional, right? Because everyone just when people when people try to look at leadership development skills, they just go to a leadership book. Not necessarily mm-hmm. other sources of ways to look at leadership. Okay. So like your approach of, you know, actually intensely learning the different um, different types of government, different forms of government, and then reading, you know, autobiographies, autobiographies of the different leaders and, and taking away how um, they were able to be the most effective leader with those type of different concepts. I think it's, um, 
I think is really interesting. A different, a different way to develop yourself and a different way of pulling different information from somewhere that's kind of random to develop your leadership skills. Mm -hmm. I don't think I did it for that purpose. I think, uh, it just happened to be that I was listening to the autobiography yeah. of Nelson Mandela mm -hmm. and that came up. Mm -hmm. But my mind is always trying to connect to a topic that's relevant to me. So I, I that got highlighted to me and I, I was like, oh, this is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying, right? Like exposing yourself to yeah. different yeah. topics, different concepts, different seemingly different concepts, seemingly different topics. Yeah. The hack for me has been like during when I work out, I used to listen to music, but I realized like, this is not really helping me become smarter. I could instead listen to audiobooks. That is, And true. I started doing that. And actually like, I'm pretty addicted now. <laughs> I'm listening to like a book a week or something. And it's a very easy way to consume data, information. You can actually make it go faster. Um, yeah, so that's been nice. That's Podcasts nice. are also great. Yeah. Yeah. My husband, he listens to audiobooks or podcasts when he works out. I'm like, how do you do that? I need music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's that's also great, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. good. So I know that we're yeah. at time, right? You have to go. Yeah. Yeah, I have another call, but I'm happy to do a chat again at some other time. Yeah, this was awesome. I feel like we had so many, yeah. like, subsequent topics we could dig into, you know? So mm -hmm. um, thank you so much, Asif. Thank you for, thank for, you. for joining. Yeah.